0: Let us jump back into Numbers, chapter 25. Last week, we started the first look at this chapter. This is Israel; they're camped out at a place called Shittim. Uh, It's where they're going to stay until they go into the Promised Land, until Joshua leads them in. So this is the last stop on their Exodus from Egypt, and this is the tail end of the unfaithful generation. So all the leaders of the people and everybody, this is the generation that came out of Egypt. And they've witnessed all the miracles. They, they pledged obedience to the covenant. They signed the contract with their lives and their blood. And in the last week, as we saw, they completely, utterly, and finally throw away their covenant relationship with God by yoking themselves, hitching themselves, marrying the gods of this area, the Baal of Peor. And they use the term marrying because worship is described all throughout Scripture as the marital act. It's it's described in in romantic and even sexual imagery. But with God's people, it was intended to be metaphorical. The spiritual aspects and the commitment is what's emphasized. The Canaanites, it was actually very literal. And the actual sex act and and the, the procreation aspect was what was emphasized. And that's what they do here at Shatim, Israel, this generation of Israelites, they, they, they basically go to the dark side. <laughs> no turning back at this point. And as we saw, this is the golden calf 2.0. The same pattern that happened after they came out of the Exodus. Just as God was speaking on a mountaintop to His prophet about the future destiny of these people, they were at the bottom of the mountain carousing being uh, worshiping idols, doing everything that they agreed not to do. This is the second time now. right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, God's not going to get shamed. He's not going to get fooled. He's had it. This is, their, this is the end. And it's important I'm emphasizing that because if you read this chapter without reading all of the three years that we've been looking at before this, then you come to this and go, well, that's pretty harsh. Why is God so angry? Why is God so angry? I hear this all the time from people. Christians even. Christians, pastors, they don't know what to do with passages like this. And it's because primarily they are reading it without having read the three books before this. It's like pulling a scene out of Huck Finn and and using that to to get your theology or your view of Mark Twain's views on race relations in the Old South. You could take a passage out and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is incredibly racist. You miss the entire point of the book, which is a, a, a in-your-face affront to the very concept of slavery and racism to begin with. But you miss that if you just read a passage between Huck and Jim or whatever. And that goes with any literary work. You pull a passage out or you pull a section out and you don't look at its context or what happened before, you can form all kinds of opinions about the character. So it's important to know how many times Israel has pledged their lives to obey the covenant and how many times they've flagrantly broken That promise. So now this is the final straw for this generation. The Lord said to Moses, verse four, Take all the leaders of the people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord. And we talked last week how those verbs for kill is is, we don't know exactly what it means, but it's a visual sign killing. It's it's like almost like crucifixion. In fact, a lot of the translations translate it like impale or expose or hang out or Put up. As a, it's a, it, this is a, a capital punishment that's supposed to be seen by everybody. And he commands it, do this uh, to the leaders of the people so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then verse 6, Then an Israelite man. Now this, again, I'm going to depart from the NIV in this chapter because this is one of the chapters where NIV just obscures a lot of stuff. It's not like it's wrong. It's just you miss things. In the Hebrew, it does not say then an Israelite man. It has vahene, behold, exclamation point. Look, it has the sense of right as Moses is saying this, right as the death penalty is being handed down from God to Moses, right then. That's the sense of this, this uh, conjunction in the Hebrew text that the NIV uh, kind of just glosses over and just translates it as them. But it's like, at that very moment, look. That's literally what it says in Hebrew. Look, uh, an Israelite man brought to his brothers, NIV says to his family, literally to his brothers, a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the eyes of the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So while Israel has gotten this verdict from God and the the people, those at least who have not crossed over to Baal, those who have not given into this idolatry, while they're weeping, lamenting what their nation has done, what their leaders have done. At the very moment, a guy brings a Midianite woman to his brothers. That has sexual connotations. Like, here's an offering. And it uses the language that you would use of bringing an offering to the, temper, to the uh, tabernacle. That's, there's a lot of irony in this story that we're going to look at. Is Instead of bringing an offering to the tent of meeting as a faithful Israelite should do, he brings a Midianite, a uh, pagan, possibly prostitute, or just a woman who wants to entice them into worship, a Baal worshiper, whatever. He brings this woman to entice, to lead, to present to his brothers right in front of the tent of meeting. You don't get more high-handed than this. And that's what we have to emphasize. You, what were the Levites supposed to do? Guard the tabernacle. Remember all of Leviticus? We spent a year looking at how the Levites were to guard the tabernacle, lest Israelites approach God's presence. So even, if, even to keep Israelites from accidentally coming too close to the holiness of God, the Levites were, too, they were, the, they were the, uh, the guards. They were the palace guards of God. They, were, they did not have men who served in the Israelite army. Their men were like the military police, right? You've got the soldiers who fight out in the battle, and then who police is on the base? The military police. They can arrest the soldiers. That's kind of how it is with the Levites. Israel's army is encamped around the tabernacle and they're going to defend against the other nations. Who's defending the tabernacle itself and the priesthood from violation, from desecration? The Levites. That's their job. So this guy comes. It was punishment to even approach unwittingly the tabernacle without the right purification and sacrificial rituals and all of that. How much worse to bring a pagan prostitute or older translation harlot or whatever you want to call it right to the tent of meeting to the very place where God showed up and spoke to Moses and the very place that symbolizes his presence to have sex with multiple Israelite men in a pagan context. I'm, I'm, I'm beating this dead horse because... It needs to be beaten. You cannot get more pagan than this. You cannot get more high handed than this. This is a big F U middle finger to the God of Israel. As profane as that is, this is that level of profanity. And it's important to realize that. It's important to realize that because we're going to see what happens next is not God just approving vigilante justice. Okay? That's key to understanding this story. So right when it happens, this man brings this woman uh, to his brothers at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, so before the eyes of Moses and before the eyes of the elders, this was happening. It was Phineas, the grandson of Aaron. Aaron's dead. Eliezer's the high priest. Phineas is next in line for the high priesthood. He sees this. It's before his eyes, but his eyes lead him to action. Phineas saw this. He left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the NIV says "tent." Possibly a tent, but this is the word, a very unique word, kubah. And it means, in different contexts, the inner part of the tent, where the, like the women's area of a larger tent so if you go to bedouin culture or whatever in large tents there's multiple we'd say rooms but it's more like divisions so some say this was like the the inner part where like so to speak the bedroom of the tent some the, the term refers to a dome sometimes and it has sacrificial connotations where it refers to possibly pagan shrines so some have said he follows them not into their tent but into a shrine that had been constructed for this purpose. Others note that no, it means the inner part of the tent and that possibly there's a case that could be made that this is the tent with a capital T, the tabernacle. And this is actually happening in the tabernacle. Now, there's pros and cons for any of those. It doesn't really matter because there's going to be a wordplay here that's going on. But whatever tent this is, and it's not his tent. We'll, know, we'll find out why it's not his, the, the, the man's tent in a minute once we find out what family he's from and then we know where they were camping in regards to the tabernacle. But regardless of whatever kubah they enter into, Phineas follows them in. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's kabata. It's the feminine word for kubah. This is this is a word play. It means most of the time belly or inner part, but it's used in sacrificial contexts for the part of the offering that you offer that you put on the it's it's found in I think Deuteronomy 10, no, Deuteronomy 18 or 8:3. 8, 18:3 3, 3, uh is one of the few it's not a, it's not a normal word. It's not the normal word for belly. It's not the normal word for womb. So there's a word play going on here. There's a specific the he goes into the kuba and stabs through both of them into her kuba. I think it intentionally has pagan connotations because what they were doing was engaging in pagan ritual sex or about to. We don't know if they were actually in the moment or not, although that's the tradition. So everything in this is ripe with sacrificial, tabernacle, Levitical imagery. The high priest to be goes in Phineas uh Pinchas is in Hebrew. Pinkas, and it's an Egyptian name. Remember, he's all these are people that came out of Egypt, and his name is an Egyptian name. And literally it means black guy <laughs> or dark skin. Uh, it, it's, that's what it means. And and he he comes and remember we've seen how people criticized when Moses's wife and they criticized her for being too dark or not being white enough, whatever. So again yet again here we have God using in the ancient world what might be denigrated as darker skin, meaning lower class, or even meaning from down in the southern parts of Africa, whatever. Once again, this is the person that rises to the occasion. Goes in, drives the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's kabbatah. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24 eleph. 24,000, 24 regiments, 24, you don't know. Doesn't matter. It's the largest number of people that have died as a punishment by God thus far in the Bible, in in, in Israel, in the Exodus. Obviously the flood (laughs) outdid this. But um, this is a serious event. It's the highest casualty, the highest capital casualty coming out of Egypt. So then the Lord says to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites for and. I'm going to depart from the NIV and read more literal translation. For by his zeal, with my zeal in their midst. In other words, he has turned the anger away from the Israelites by his zeal for my zeal in their midst. He had the his the affront to God was, was taken by Phinehas, the high priest to be as an affront to everything. Now this is not the same as him seeing somebody worshiping another god and going after them and attacking them. This is not a case of religious intolerance. Just, you know, you can't use this to justify lashing out at people who don't believe in your god or who do something that you think is desecrating or whatever. This is so far beyond that. This is this is in the realm of somebody going into Congress or into the Oval Office. And and doing something that's entirely against the very foundations, of, you know, going into the Oval Office and burning the Constitution, <laughs> think of it, something like that. Um, this is this is going into the Holocaust Museum and putting up a Nazi flag, right? That has the ethical overtones of what's going on here. It's desecrating beyond belief. And so Phineas does the job that the Levites were to do. Think back to the golden calf when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf. Who were the ones who, Moses said, if you're with me on this side, if you're against God over there, who came to his side? The Levites. Who then was given the task of going through and executing the offenders, the, those who had turned, into, turned to paganism? The Levites. So now, Phineas, the Levite par excellence, is doing the same thing. He's part of the new generation. He's a grandson of Aaron. So he was just a baby when they came out of Egypt, if he was even born. He might have even been born during the wilderness. But he does, the new generation acts faithfully just how God had called the previous generation. So there's a glimmer of hope in this. Yes, the ones who are dying off from that generation have abandoned themselves completely to Baal. But the new generation has not. And there's hope. And it's embodied in Phineas, this dark one. And so Phineas, uh, it says, verse 12, Therefore, I am giving my covenant of shalom with him. Literally, I'm giving my covenant of shalom with him. Uh, NIV says making my covenant of peace. Uh, there's a little bit of irony. This covenant of peace came through an act that is very violent. But this, was, this highlights the difference, even in God's eyes, between killing and murder. There are times in Israel, whether that holds under the new covenant or not, is a separate issue. Whether Jesus changed the game in that regard, we can talk about much later. But in this context, there were capital crimes, and this was one of them. And Phineas executed that capital crime as the head of the Levites. So he did exactly what God had called the Levites to do all along. So God says, I've given my covenant of peace or shalom. It doesn't mean just peace. It means wholeness or completeness or harmony or fullness or or things being right. Verse 13, He and His seed will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because He was zealous for His God. NIV says for the honor of His God, but that's not in the text. It's literally He was zealous for His God and made atonement for the Israelites. Phineas, the high priest-to-be, made atonement. That's what the high priest does. And he made atonement through an offering. There's so much irony in this. At the tent of meeting. The offering that was brought to the tent of meeting was a pagan sexual offering. This was not a substitutionary atonement. The ones who sinned were the ones who died. The the woman and the man and his brothers, if they were part of it, and the plague that God sent as a result, and the people that died from it. In other words, sin brought death in the tabernacle. I, the, the commentator uh, Roy Gain in the New International uh, Application Commentary, I wrote this down because it's a great quote. He says, Phineas penetrates both Kuba and with his spear, Herkaba. Uh, and this word appears only in Deuteronomy 18.3 where it relates to the stomach of a sacrificial animal. The Midianite woman who is likely in the process of enticing the Israelite man to participate in a sacrifice to her gods is publicly brought as if she were a sacrifice and is slain by an Israelite priest. This is how he made atonement. He sacrificed them at the entrance of the tabernacle. And it wasn't a substitutionary atonement either. In other words, that was vividly seeing atonement, sin, death, And so every atonement after that, that would be vivid on the mind. is The one who sins is the one who should die, but God in His mercy has set up this atonement system so that every day, every year on Yom Kippur, instead of us receiving the penalty, we bring forth our sacrifice and our faith in the covenant God is what atones for this. There's, I, I, I'm harking on this because people can read this again and they'll go, "Oh, this means God likes when people kill people that that you know commit uh, desecration. You know, you 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 desecrate something and the penalty is death, or God's a bloodthirsty God, or He cheers vigilante justice." No, not vigilante justice. Phineas was the one. If anybody was had capital punishment power in Israel, there's no king. There's prophet and priest. So he was rightfully, this, is, this would be akin to the state executing somebody today who was guilty of a crime. You can be for or against the death penalty, but you have to recognize that it's different when someone is executed versus when somebody goes out and kills somebody on the street because they're mad. This is not simply a crime of passion, although Phineas was passionate. But he was passionate within the context that he was appointed to, the guardian of the tabernacle. And then we get some little background on this, The the name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. Why does that matter? Simeonites were camped on the south side of the tabernacle, as we saw in Leviticus. If you look at the arrangement of the camp, the Simeonites were down here at the south side. This happened at the entrance, which is up on the east side. This was not him bringing a foreign wife into his tent and him just committing uh, sacrilege or idolatry in the camp he brought her from his camp to the entrance of the tabernacle. Again, there's so much more going on here than just a simple, oh, God doesn't want you marrying foreign women. Not at all. Not at all. The whole book of the Bible is going to be named after a foreign woman in a short time after this took place, by the way. And she's going to have a grandson, and he's going to give birth to a guy named King David, who will be in the line of Jesus. So God's cool with Gentile women. It's Pagan idolatry and worship of other gods that he's not cool with. And that's exactly what uh, this man, who we find out Zimri, ends up doing. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. So again, the leader of a a high-ranking person within Midian and a high-ranking person within Israel. That's what's happening here. This is not just random Billy Bob Israelite fell in love with Miss Midian and wants to marry... This is not that. This is every bit of the formal, theological, cultic, ritualistic language that permeates this story. The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and strike them. NIV says kill them, but the word is kill, strike, depending on the context. Treat the Midianites as enemies and strike them. Because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor. And their sister, Cosby, daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came, as a result of Peor. So herein is here there's a there's a, a divide that we have to make on this. Treat them as enemies and strike them or kill them, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor. Question is: is this carte blanche against all Midianites everywhere? or is this strike the midianites who deceived you in other words is this god saying i'm you're to attack these people you can kind of read it both ways now the midianites would go on to be enemies of israel and they would frequently harass their distant cousins they're both descended from abraham but it's important i think it's important to note this is again not just god saying a woman came in and and Entice some of you to worship Baal, so genocide. It's not that. Punishment fitting the crime. Treat as enemies because they treated you as enemies. Do to them what was done to you as a nation. Not individually. This is not, again, not vigilante justice and God will say, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. But what He's doing, what we're seeing is these people who again, who who hired Balaam uh, to come curse Israel, Moab and Midian. Who is trying to bring about Israel's downfall? Moab and Midian. Moab wanted to do it with their army, so Balak brought in Balaam to curse them. The Midianites, it seems, are a little more savvy. Oh, you can't beat them with an army, but you can beat them from within. We're gonna find out in chapter 31 that they got this idea from a guy that we've met already. The whole idea of, hey, if you get them to abandon their covenant, then all the protections that God promised are gone. That was not their idea. That was somebody else's. But they agreed. And so the Midianites, instead of cursing like Balak tried to do, they come in and try to lure them away. And they do it through this sexual, pagan, uh, orgiastic notion of worship Baal, follow this God at the very spot that's his domain. But that's where God has already said he's going to bless Israel. However, not this generation. Because as we'll see, and we'll pick this up next week, verse 1 of chapter 26, after the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar son of Aaron the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families. All those 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army of Israel. How did the book of Numbers begin? Take a census of all who were able to serve in the army 20 years or older. This is the end of that generation. The second half of the book of Numbers begins in chapter 26. There's two census lists in Numbers. Chapter 1, chapter 26. Chapter 1, the census names are these impressive names, these, these fateful sounding names. It's high hopes. Everything's going, supposed to be going great. Downfall into idolatry. And they're gone. They're, they're done. This, that was the last we heard of them was they died in this plague. The remaining rebels were put to death. Now, the book starts over, so to speak, with the new generation. The ones who were more like Phineas than they were like Zimri. That's who's gonna begin in this next count. Now, there is an anomaly that I'll just mention because you'll come across it. When Paul, it says 24,000 died, and when Paul talks about, some people think he's alluding to this passage, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says 23,000. And so there's a question because earlier at the golden calf, 3,000 uh, ended up being the number that died and, or, or that were, there, there was a number, 3,000 was used, but then in this one it's 24,000. So the question is, wh- wh- where's the 1,000 that Paul missed? And scholars are divided on that. Uh, they don't know exactly what Paul was citing. If he was talking about this passage, if he was talking about something else, if he was just round again. Round numbers in the Bible is the norm, not the exception. So whenever you come across numbers in the Bible, it's like if I say a dozen and there's 14 of something in English, I'm right because I'm speaking colloquially. In math, I'd be wrong because I'm speaking scientifically. Well, this is pre-scientific culture and the way they use numbers and all of that. So again, I just want to mention it because you will, come up, you will come up against it, especially if you have somebody who goes through and tries to pick out all the contradictions in the Bible. Don't be surprised if you hear that, but hopefully at least you understand all of the ways that numbers are used in Scripture are anything but mathematical precision, especially in the book of Numbers, which is the irony of the name. But we're out of time. So have a great week. Uh, Contact me if you're interested about the trip, the details, and otherwise we'll see you next week as we begin the next part, the new generation. We get to start over with a clean slate. Have a great week.